Today at Reader's Corner, Sean D. Carberry, author of the new book, Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, award-winning journalist Sean D. Carberry joins us to talk about his book, Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. In the book, Carberry looks for solace in the world's most dangerous places, joining the ranks of combat-tested war correspondents. But the learning curve of reporting in hostile environments is steep, at times comical, at other times nearly fatal. He encounters broken infrastructure and weaponry, whiskey, lust, and way too much food poisoning. And when the assignment ends, he is left to confront the mental and emotional impact of the years of danger, death, and destruction. Sean Carberry is an award-winning journalist, writer, and editor. In his more than 15 years as a radio and print journalist, he has traveled to dozens of war-torn countries, and he was NPR's last Kabul-based correspondent from 2012 to 2014. He later spent several years working for the Defense Department Office of Inspector General, writing and editing oversight reports on counterterrorism operations before returning to journalism. Sean Carberry, welcome to Reader's Corner. Bob, thanks so much for having me. Well, Sean, as I was uh, telling you before we went on the air, I so much enjoyed uh, the book, and uh, and you must know that when I pick up a book, the first thing I do is read the acknowledgments and read who the book is dedicated to. And um, okay. I did that with your book. And uh, even though I don't normally start at the end of your book where this information is regarding who you dedicated the book to, I want to do it in this case because I think it shows uh, what kind of a person you are and what you got yourself into and how you got yourself out of it. And so you dedicate the book to David Gilkey, first of all. We'll talk about him for a second. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, the latter part of the book deals with Afghanistan and your time there, and we're going to talk about a lot of other things. But start off by telling us why David Gilkey was so important to you. Yeah, David um, really wasn't in my life for a tremendously long period of time. We met uh, right when I joined NPR in the summer of 2011. And uh, I'd known about him for for years. He was, you know, uh, really well regarded and esteemed among the community of uh, journalists who, who cover conflict. So, uh, had known about him for for a long time and had a lot of mutual friends and uh, we had just never crossed paths downrange before um and so when i joined npr i think it was my first day um at one point as i'm going through the process of all the hr forms and then also having npr's sort of version of james bond q coming into my office <laughs> measuring me for body armor and all that since i was about to run off to libya David kind of sauntered in, you know, with this, this sort of look and, you know, this kind of like, oh, so you're, you're the new guy. Um, <laughs> as you know, I came on as international producer and, uh, you know, we, we just immediately just fell into a, a, you know, a deep sort of friendship and, and rapport and had known a lot of the same people, been around the same places. Similarly, um, it's, it's, hard to to put my finger ex- exactly on it but there was something about david that was a little different than than a lot of the other people in the business and there was a 
humility and humanity and real dedication to the people that he photographed around the world. And, um, you know, it really, it wasn't about him. He wasn't doing it for, you know, awards or any of that. He really cared about the people he photographed and he had been in the, you know, the initial wave of people going into Afghanistan in 2001. So he'd been there from the beginning, had been going in, frequently and was just really committed to the Afghan people and the military units that that he had embedded with and spent time with. And so he was really passionate about that. But um, over the years when we we worked together and spent time together, we just, you know, really bonded and and had a uh, a very deep friendship, very open, uh, emotionally honest friendship, talking about the nature of the work that we were doing. Uh, we went through periods together of friends of ours being killed um, in in Afghanistan and other places, and uh, you know, really tried to to chew through that and think about what we were doing and the nature of it. And then, unfortunately, in 2016, uh, during a uh, an Afghanistan reporting trip, uh, he was he was killed uh, in a Taliban ambush, and um, you know it's it's I mean to this day an enormous hole in my life. He was sort of one person I really felt understood me and the things that that I was working through um, during and after my time downrange. So uh, just a very pivotal person and uh, an enormous hole, um, you know, since uh, since he passed. Well, I mean, if there's one one thing that that uh, you left me with, it's it's the fact that too often the photojournalist, for example, who's somewhat in the background, could also be a producer. Uh, we never hear hear from them. We know what they do because, of course, it's it's the product that they're sending back. Usually, the product is delivered by a host, one of the stars of the show, you might say, but. Um, I think you quoted him as saying he always felt he was expendable. Who would care or notice? But boy, if a host was killed, now that's a big deal. Well, again, I just wanted to start the program by giving David Gilkey the the front row seat here because uh, he's obviously a courageous – was a courageous man but also somebody really, really dedicated to the profession and dedicated to getting information back to the American people. Now, the other person – no, excuse me, not person – uh, the other important uh, member of your family that uh, you dedicate this book to is Squeaky. And um, we love dogs and cats here in Boise, Idaho. So I know that uh, this story is going to grab our listeners and uh, they're not going to be able to get off the off the line here for the next 30 minutes. So tell us how you found Squeaky and how Squeaky doing these days. Well, uh, so for the record, she just woke up moments before, uh, we, we connected and, uh, is now sitting in the windowsill near me and chatting at, uh, some wildlife outside. So, uh, she might, she might chime in in the background. Uh, so squeak, um, so I, I, I've moved full time to, to Kabul in fall of 2012. And within a week or so of moving into the NPR bureau, uh, which had a, you know, really lovely patio and backyard and, uh, just, you know, a, a very, very nice setting within, uh, what was not a particularly nice broader setting. But, uh, one afternoon I noticed a, a cat came through the yard with two kittens tagging along 
And so I ran into the kitchen to try to find a can of tuna or something to put out on the patio. And they passed through the yard and disappeared before I could get some food out. And then, uh, I don't know, a week or two later, the mother cat came through the yard again with one kitten. And at that point, I was able to get some food out, put it out, and they came up on the patio and ate. And so that was happening every few days for for a couple of weeks. And then uh, eventually it got to a point where I guess Squeak had grown to the level where she needed to be uh, sent off on her own. So I'd put food out and the mother would knock Squeak out of the way, eat food. And then when she was done, allow Squeak to uh, to have something, whatever was left. And so I started looking at this kitten thinking, all right, you know, this is this sort of mud caked scrawny cat with a pot belly full of worms has got a, a short lifespan and uh you know decided well i guess i'm i'm rescuing a kitten so really right within the first month of when i moved to afghanistan i ended up uh bringing her on board and so you know eased her into the house um got her comfortable domesticated took her to the clinic got her vaccinated wormed all that stuff and then she spent basically the next two plus years with me in Kabul um enduring all the things that we endured and then uh brought her brought her back to the U.S. with me so she won the uh the Kabul street kitten lottery and has had a (laughs) a very cushy life in the United States since uh she arrived in February of 2015. Did you have any trouble getting her back home uh with airplane rides and things like that. <laughs> so actually, no, there, there was an organization and I, I actually did a story about them in 2014, uh, Nozad. It was a clinic founded by a uh, British Royal Marine who had rescued a dog when he was deployed in Helmand. And he smuggled the dog out of the country and then decided to start a nonprofit to help other soldiers and Marines uh, service members get animals out of the country that they oh. rescued on on deployments. It was you know so common to have mm-hmm. stray dogs and cats roaming around uh, the military bases, and that organization blossomed into a full scale veterinary clinic and kennels and all sorts of services in Kabul. And so they had the routine down. And so basically, you know, I handed Squeak over to them. They took care of all the logistics, booked her flights. She flew to uh, Dubai and then through um, Amsterdam. <laughs> and then I picked her up at the uh, the cargo terminal in uh, Dulles. And, uh, you know, she was perfectly happy, healthy, and, uh, you know, eager to, to embrace American life. Uh, that's just a great story. Well, let's get back to your story and specifically mm-hmm. the calling of the tribe. Uh, mm-hmm. That really accounts for the journeys you've taken to the most dangerous places in the world, the foreign war correspondent tribe. Share with us just what that means. I mean, how do you, how did you view yourself when you were uh, with these fellow journalists? And again, you might share with our listeners your first job, so to speak, was with America abroad. Uh, probably not exactly the place you wanted to stay, and you didn't, as a matter of fact. But it was a good start, I guess. Really stepping back sort of uh, one one degree before that was was just the fact that, um, you know, really my journey started somewhat cliches, it may be, on, on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I was 
fairly new in my journalism career. I was a producer for an NPR talk show based in Boston at the time called The Connection. And so 9-11 happened and then the war in Afghanistan happens. And it's, you know, obviously it's, it's a moment of, of a generation just in terms of not just for, for news, but just for, for, for Americans, for people alive at that time. It was obviously a defining event. And in the fall of 2001, uh, we would get journalists on satellite phones from Afghanistan to give updates at the top of our programs. And so that was the first thing that kind of spoke to me in fall 2001 is those people out there and describing what was going on and the advance of U.S. forces pushing out the Taliban. And as a journalist early in my career, at that moment, I felt a strong pull to to want to be out there to to tell that story to see that i just felt that as as a journalist at that time that was you know, it was just sort of a calling and so that started the process and then as you mentioned uh the program america abroad which i came across in 2007 and moved from boston to washington dc to work for that program which did a monthly international affairs kind of documentary type of program and that program started sending me overseas to do reporting trips. And immediately I was trying to focus on getting to places like Afghanistan, but, but a lot of the places that were more difficult, uh, to access, to report on. And I was, you know, what was called a parachuter at the time. I was based in DC. I would drop into some place for one to three weeks at a time, gather material and come back to, to Washington. And during that work, I would always engage with the expat communities of journalists and aid workers and, and diplomats in these places, whether it was, you know, the Congo or Colombia or Egypt or eventually Iraq and Afghanistan. And I just felt again that that community of people, um, that tribe as, you know, the war correspondents to use that term was my community of people. That's just, I, I felt I, I belonged there. I related to them. I related to the reasons that they had gone down the road of, of doing that work. And eventually when I moved full time to Afghanistan and was living in, in the tribe there, that, that, that did feel like home for me. Um, you know, hence sort of the, the subtitle of the, the book, the searching the, the world for a war to call home. Uh, and, and again, you know, it relates back to David Gilkey, who was, you know, part of that community. And there was just a, a, a commonality. I mean, obviously all different people from all over the world. And that's part of what was interesting about it as well is, you know, there are members of the tribe who were from, you know, the UK, Australia, uh, Pakistan, India, you know, any number of places, but these were all people who, went to places like Afghanistan, South Sudan, because they wanted to to tell stories, they wanted to help, they wanted to try to impact what was going on. And, and to be fair, there's always a certain segment of that group of people who are really sort of thrill seekers and looking for uh, adventure and danger and, and some of that. So it's, you know, not all altruists and things like that. And certainly, you know, I think all of us have a have a mixed motive that, you know, I wanted to tell stories. But yes, there was that sense of adventure, of exploration, of 
running off into the jungles of, of the Congo to try to understand what's happening there and communicate that to the world and and have that adventure and experiences is all part of it. But um, certainly that that community really was uh, where where I felt sort of most myself and and living the life that captivated me but where i felt also i i was delivering the you know the greatest purpose uh, i was using my range of skills and abilities to to best use to to tell stories of things in far-flung places you're listening to sean carberry he's the author of passport stamps searching the world for a war to call home well what i appreciated about your book sean is Number one, there are insights into the politics of the regions you visited, and they relate directly to American foreign policy. So along the way, the reader is going to learn something. For example, when we get to Afghanistan, uh, we just finished a, a, a book, by the way, and I interviewed the author, uh, The Secret Gate by Mitchell Zukoff, which is the story of the fall of uh, Kabul and, and how it all came about and didn't come about, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and frankly, uh, when I'm reading your take on Afghanistan, there are moments when I'm thinking, yeah, when Biden gave that speech about no more American lives ought to be lost here, um, he might have been on to something, uh, given how messy Afghan politics and the Afghan army uh, were. And, and I think that uh, really helps the, the reader get a take on what was going on over there. Secondly, there's so many great insights uh, about the people you're doing business with. And Lindsay Hilsom wrote a book who we also interviewed on this show called In Extremist about the life and career of Marie Colvin, uh, mm-hmm. who, who was, as you say, deliberately killed in action. And yeah. you, 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 you met her while you were over there, did you not? Yeah, yeah. We spent some time together in Libya in 2011. Yeah. Um, I mean, that had to be... Again, another one of those experiences that you just uh, you just don't forget. Somebody who has given her life uh, for the tribe, I guess you could say. Let's talk about Lebanon and one of your early stops in your war reporting career. Um, mm-hmm. You tell the reader that you now understood how the socio-political system caused people to develop a sectarian identity as strong, if not sometimes stronger, than their national identity. Give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, so w- without getting too far down the the political science uh, rabbit hole of Lebanon, <laughs> but the, the the government structure in Lebanon uh, that was formed in the 1940s was based around the different religious sects in the country, and so they identified 18 specific religious sects. So within Christianity, you had Maronite Christians, Malachite Christians, you had uh, Orthodox, all so different Christian sects. You had Sunni, you had Shia, and basically based on the, pol- the uh, population at the time they formed the government, they allotted seats in parliament and basically divided up power based on the population of each sect. And that has been more or less the same since the the 1940s there was a you know slight modification down the road but basically it's this pretty rigid uh structure that really reinforces your sort of subnational identity there and that as a member of whatever sect you get a certain share of of power 
And even though population has changed and now they're more Shia than there were at the, the time the government was founded, uh, they still have the same share of, of the government. So, um, it is very religious sect based. And then, so a lot of, you know, you have communities, you have neighborhoods in Beirut that are for sort of each community. Uh, and so it's, it's a very rigid structure. It's also extremely fragile because as groups have grown in size, they haven't been able to grow in power and government. So they look outside the system and use all sorts of means to try to increase their, their power and influence. So, uh, it's a structure that, that basically, you know, everyone in Lebanon will tell you it's utterly flawed and leads to paralysis, a weak state, civil war. Uh, periodic low-level conflict, things like that. Uh, but no one's really come up with a great solution for it because changing it means some people who have more power than their population base would would give them today would essentially lose power. So they don't want to change the system. Um, so it's 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 a complicated and and difficult system where again your your religious identity. Uh, is sort of constantly reinforced and, you know, the political system reflects that. So, um, you know, one of the more unusual systems that, um, that I encountered, but, um, it was, it was pivotal for me and without, you know, revealing too much in the book, some of the, the backstory, but again, you know, Lebanon and that notion of identity did play a you know, significant role in, in my journey and this need for, for tribe. Mm-hmm. So most folks don't think of Yemen as a warm and cuddly place, needless to say. <laughs> uh, you had an experience there that uh, I didn't expect. Uh, I didn't see it coming. And um, it had to do, I think, with uh, with a family or a group of folks uh, inviting you to eat with them. Could you could you share what that meant to you and and help our listeners understand how maybe unusual it would be to find that in a place like Yemen? Well, to your point, I, th- I think it's it's an example of something that that happens not just there but around the world. It's that the difference between the the perception and what sort of conveyed through news. Because obviously, when Yemen is in the news in the United States, it's not for good reasons. It's because <laughs> right. a terrorist tried to blow up a, an airplane with explosives in his underwear, and he trained and got the support to do that in Yemen. Um, so, you know, Yemen in particular, when people in America hear about it, it's, it's not, not for good reasons. And so again, you, you, you build up uh, essentially biases towards certain places and assume, okay, well, Yemen is a dangerous place full of terrorists and, and there's been a raging civil war since the Arab Spring. But like any place, uh, you know, that might be at a macro level, but below the surface, there are, you know, they're just people there. Right. The average person in Yemen is not a terrorist, not supporting terrorism, not interested in civil war. They're trying to go about their lives. And so in my first day of my reporting trip to Yemen, I went to a, a cell phone shop to, to get a SIM card. That's you know, one of the journalistic rituals. Anytime you get go to a new place, one of the first things you do is get a local SIM card so that you can communicate with uh, with people in the country. So I went to this, this shop. There were two young guys working there and they really didn't speak any English. I spoke a few words of, of Arabic, but, you know, able to conduct a transaction 
Uh, and I got the SIM card from them, got my phone set up. And as I was about to leave the shop, one of them had walked into sort of a back room and pointed to a little cooler on a, on a table back there. And I sort of assumed he was basically inviting me to, to have tea. It was just sort of, you know, typical, uh, custom in, in the region. And, uh, so I nodded and, uh, then, you know, the other guy goes and he locks the front door of the shop, which kind of gave me a, a little bit of pause and then put out a plastic tarp in the center of the floor, this, this cell phone shop. And so, you know, again, the paranoid brain starts thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> And then they proceeded to open this cooler and put out a lunch spread of like chicken and rice and uh, sauces and invited me to sit down and and have lunch with them. So I sat on the floor with these two guys who we couldn't have a conversation. We sat and ate, you know, digging in with our hands, eating this stuff. And, um, you know, when I was finished, we basically said goodbye and, and I walked out thinking, you know, they just shared a lunch with me that probably cost five times what they made off the SIM card that I bought from them. Hmm. And in a country, one of the poorest countries in the world, and just thinking about to them, the importance to them of showing hospitality to a stranger. And hmm. for all I know, I was, you know, the only American who had ever walked into that cell phone shop. Um, but the importance to them of showing me hospitality and sharing and inviting me in like that was absolutely, um, it's it just, it's almost hard to process in a way because you just think, sure. you know, would, would that happen here? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that really reinforced to me the importance of looking at people around the world as individuals, not categorizing them by their, their governments or their militaries or other things like that. Um, and you know, something that a lot of people would say to me in, in the Middle East or South Asia, it's that, you know, we, we love Americans. We just don't love your country's foreign policy. You know, they would really make a clear distinction. And I, I think that was something that, that was important as well. And what those guys showed me is again, you know, people, people are individuals. And, uh, you know, there's, there's humanity all around and they aren't defined by, you know, their governments, especially in places where they don't even get to vote for their government. So, you know, there's no way that these folks are in any way, uh, you know, representative or uh, driving the foreign policy of some of these countries. So, you know, really eye opening and, and just a reminder to, to view people everywhere as, as humans first. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with Sean D. Carberry author of the new book, Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. The book is a darkly comic and emotionally fraught tale of a former NPR journalist who seeks solace in the world's most dangerous places. You know, you discuss in your book, I don't know whether it was Afghanistan or Pakistan, I think it was Afghanistan, you discuss the growing paradox within you about wanting to experience war. You wanted, you were looking for the action. You didn't want to be, uh, you know, somewhere in the back. You wanted to be up front on the front line. And, um, most of your book is about how you gradually moved further and farther and farther toward that goal. And I want to, I want you to tell us about the time that the motorcycle tripped the IED. Because I think that was one of those moments, if not the single moment, when you did realize, well, yeah, I want I want to see it, but I don't want it to kill me. 
um, <laughs> you can take it from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, it, you know, when I got into doing this work, there was certainly a, a desire to to see all of it and to experience all of it. And I got into it later than a lot of you know contemporaries who had covered the early days of Afghanistan or the invasion of Iraq and people I knew who had been in Fallujah and things like that. And so there, there was a part of me, um, out of both curiosity, professional competitiveness, et cetera, that I, I, you know, wanted to see what we call the bang bang. And so certainly was trying to get myself in situations where I, I would see or experience that. And over time, you know, I was in some of these places kind of after the worst had happened. And so the incident you're talking about was 2009 in Afghanistan. And I was, I was on an embed. And I was actually out with a team that was um, doing sort of agricultural development and civil affairs work. And so I'd ridden along with them off into this village and they were inspecting some projects and then paying the local uh, workers. And as we were getting ready to leave and drive back to the base, uh, there was a loud explosion not far off. And, you know, so they, the security forces go run and check see what's happening. They tell me to get in one of the armored vehicles and shelter. And, uh, they determined that a motorcyclist was riding into the village where we were and had run across a tripwire to an IED and detonated it. And fortunately he was off to the side. So the blast actually didn't really harm him, but. What we determined was that IED had been planted while we were in the village because there was only one road in. So we had driven in, we were there for a while. So that was planted for us to hit on the way out. And there were a, a few different implications that were really kind of startling. I mean, one was, okay, you know, this, this is real. I mean, had that motorcyclist not come along, the lead vehicle in the convoy would have hit it and potentially there would have been people lying in wait to then come attack while we were sort of crippled on the road there. So what, how did, how did that get planted while we were there? Did someone in the village make a phone call and say, Hey, American troops are here, you know, send a guy to plant the bomb. Uh, were people watching from not far away? I mean, you know, don't know ultimately the source and who, who was responsible, but it's possible that one of the, the Afghans that had been working on the U.S. funded project and had just been paid was involved in, uh, you know, setting that, that IED or alerting people to set it. Um, but that, again, eye-opening in terms of how complex the situation was there, how Afghans could sometimes be, as they said, double-dipping, where they're taking support from U.S. and NATO and also supporting the Taliban because, you know, they need money and want to feed their families. Um, but also the realization, it's like the firefights, you know, you can visualize that and see the threat, but there's always this low-level threat like that, that IEDs get planted and people hit them and rockets would get launched into bases where I was. And those were the the moments where you realize like you're, you are never safe in a war zone. You know, you, you have this sort of mentality sometimes on an embed that uh, you're around the best forces in the world and they're going to protect you. But, you know, you're never safe and anything could happen at any time. And that again was another one of those moments on my learning curve of really understanding what I had gotten myself into and that, you know, there's, there's constant danger. Uh, it just isn't always 
as visual and and pronounced as a firefight, but anything could happen at any time. Well, my next question is perfectly uh, timed with your last answer because the most important message you leave with the reader is the lack of PTSD counseling programs for reporters who return from the field of battle. Obviously, if you're in the American military, you come home and the VA hospital is there for you. Uh, not so much with reporters. Uh, at one point, you say that NPR, at least in the period during which you're writing this book, uh, like every other media organization, was ignorant of the mental health issues uh, on its own staff returning from war zones and what have you. At one point, you call your own experience disorienting and depressing. Has anything changed in the years since you were over there? And this is 2023 now. Was NPR listening or did they read your book? <laughs> did anything happen? There's There's been progress since the end of 2014 when I returned from Afghanistan. Certainly not enough. I mean, you know, when I came back, basically the, the only thing that, that NPR had to offer was there was a uh, some type of counselor on call. So it was a voluntary thing. They said, if you need to talk to anyone, uh, there's a guy you can call. That was kind of the um, checking the box in the industry at that time. And of course, you know, no one's going to call the person because, you know, you, you don't think you need it. You don't realize how affected you are sometimes for a long time after you get back. Um, since then, a lot of news organizations have been adding like sort of peer counseling groups to, you know, be able to check in and monitor and they're doing some bringing people in to do some training. But it's it's I still think kind of a, a drop in the bucket. And I don't think that there's still enough recognition that, um, you know, people today and it's not just war correspondents, right? We have people in the United States who are young beat reporters that cover City Hall who suddenly have to cover a school shooting in their community. And, you know, so they're not trained to do traumatic coverage, trauma-informed journalism. Um, so th there's more conversation. COVID certainly um, increased the discussion around mental health and started to make it a little more acceptable to discuss and put more pressure on organizations to to do something about it. But I think it's still, it's, it's a long way from, from where it needs to be. And as you noted, at least, you know, for, for veterans, there is an organization. Uh, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The VA is hardly meeting the, the need. Um, but it's there. It's resourced. It's trying. There are NGOs and nonprofits that are also trying to serve veterans, but there's nothing like that for the civilians, journalists, diplomats, aid workers who work in these places and have in some cases, extremely traumatic experiences. I mean, again, I had to report on the deaths of a lot of friends of mine during the time I was in Afghanistan and had a lot of near misses and had nothing when I got back to help me process that. So, um, as I said, I think there's been some incremental improvement, but it still needs to be something where there's structured uh, sort of mandatory reentry counseling when you get back. So it takes away the stigma of someone choosing to get help. It's a level playing field. It's mandatory. Everyone goes through some kind of screening to make sure that they're able to function without making some of the bad life choices and things that I did in the years after I got back, because I just didn't understand where my head was at the mm -hmm. time. 
Yes, and I, I didn't. I didn't want to go into that. Uh, our readers can pick that up uh, toward the close of the book when you discuss in an epilogue how things turned out for you. But you you had a tough go of it, like so many people returning from these war zones. Uh, I guess the last question ought to be: What are you doing now, and what's next? Uh, I, at one point in your book, you mentioned, "Well, this may be a subject for another book." <laughs> <laughs> well. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I want to want to leave open the possibility for uh, for other books, but um, you know, right now, uh, you know, I'm I'm you know my my day job is you know managing editor of National Defense Magazine, so focused on covering the the defense industry at a really critical time right now. But in terms, you know, right now, the book, um, I'm really trying to get this mental health message out and really try to build some discussion around it and uh, make both journalists and news organizations aware and see and see what can be done. You know, I'm not trying to, this isn't just, you know, criticism. This is recognition that um, it's, this is a, a big issue that hasn't been an area of focus for a long time. The ethic in journalism always used to be, you know, whiskey and pills fix everything and I think, you know, we've been slowly moving away from that. And so I want to help uh, push that conversation right now and uh, see where it goes. Because obviously with the war in Ukraine, there are a lot of people downrange right now covering uh, a, a very violent and um, <laughs> unnecessary uh, conflict. And, uh, you know, people are going to need uh, need something when they get back. And so hopefully we can uh, we can do more about that. I think this is a great way to conclude this interview with what you just said. Uh, there's no doubt that what you have uh, done here is write a book that has great insights about war reporting, but leaves us all with the challenge of making sure that those of you who are out there covering these war zones uh, come home to the appropriate treatment uh, you deserve. Sean Carberry, thanks so much. For joining me today at Reader's Corner, the book is Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. You've done an excellent job. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. It's great to speak with you. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.